like to turn with you at this time to the Word of God, Isaiah, in chapter 9. We have been considering the prophecies of Emmanuel in what has been called the Book of Emmanuel in Isaiah. And that would begin, I believe, at chapter 6 already, where Isaiah receives his great commission, and extend also to that chapter, which will be for our text in the evening, chapter 12, the Book of Emmanuel, God with us. We've considered various things about this Emmanuel. And we will also consider uh, other wonderful things that are revealed of Emmanuel in chapter 9 at this time. I want to say by way of correction that my sermon title is, is incorrect in the bulletin, my bad. I changed my mind later in the week. Ministers do that sometimes. I want to emphasize merely the kingship of Emmanuel, but want to emphasize that he's the light, he's the wonderful light is Emmanuel, and you'll find out as we read that the birth of the Christ child is prophesied here against the great backdrop of darkness in Israel, and so we want to consider Emmanuel's birth and this wonderful announcement in chapters 9 in, in, the, in the light of the darkness, if we may put it that way. The... Uh, Prophecy, really, of chapter 9 starts in verse 8, so let's read verse 19 and 20 of uh, verse 8 and get the context a little bit here. And what happens, what's happened is that there's this uh, judgment of God upon Israel, and there's a reaction, a, a calling to a certain reaction toward the people of God. If you have judgments, here's what you do. Don't get all hot and bothered about it and fretful, but fear God and find your rest in him, your sanctuary. But in the history of the nations and of the church, there's some and even many in the church who don't listen to God's word in the time of chastisements and judgments. And so they, they go somewhere else for help, maybe to counselors and, and maybe to uh, mediums of the world and in their own resources, doctors and so on, lawyers. Um, and it's all wrong because they should be casting their burdens upon the Lord, as, as should we. And so here's what the problem was. There were leaders and many, in fact, a veritable consensus of people who were saying, don't look to the word now, but this, verse 19. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. That is, the miserable comforters, the, the miserable ones, even among the lead, leaders of Israel, were, were ill-advisedly advising people not to go to the word but to other sources of information for help. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they're hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, 
and they will be driven into darkness. That's the context. But here's the word, verse verse 1 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when he, at first, he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Here's the well-known prophecy, children. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him, and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke through the wrath of the Lord of hosts. The land is burned up and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Thus far we read Isaiah chapter 9. Trust that 
you can appreciate that there's a lot here in this chapter and that you can bear with your servant as he brings to bring, uh, can, uh, tries to bring the whole of it to you. Never done this before. Usually focus on one thing or another, but sensing that we're going to be blessed and considering this as a whole. It's about this light against the darkness, and I want to start out and, and ask a question of the children. And you parents can listen if you want, but of your children... Children, are you afraid of the dark? You don't have to answer. Probably best you don't. But maybe in your head you say, yeah, I am a little bit afraid. I used to be. And I'd be afraid of those monsters under the bed. I don't want to stir up fears, but I had them in the closet too. I don't know why. But of course, and I tell you, children, there's no such thing as those kinds of monsters under the bed and in the closet. There's something about the dark, though, that instinctively we fear. And it's in the children. There's something they fear, and it's the unknown in the dark, the things that go bump in the night. As we get older, we realize that there are dangers in the dark. There are things that go bump in the night and that would make us go bump in the night. We trip over them. And there's all kinds of wickedness in this world, and the wicked come out at night. And we're warned against the the workers of iniquity in the night. And that we're children of light. We're not to be children of the darkness who under the cloak of darkness try to hide their cruel and nefarious and wicked deeds. Darkness, darkness, darkness. We're all sensing and knowing that it's not good environment and there's lots of bad that occurs in the darkness. And This is a prevailing theme in the Bible, darkness is, and in the setting of our our text in Isaiah 9, it's, it's darkness, there's darkness here, and the darkness of the judgment of God upon the land, Emmanuel's land, the most unusual kind of darkness in that land of light, light and plenty, that land of revelation, that land of God and his people and the people with God. But there's darkness here. The darkness of the worst kind, not only of the wicked Assyrians and Syrians and whoever are the enemies of the people of God, but the darkness of God's own judgment. God's not happy with this people. In fact, you read three times in chapter 9, for all this, his anger is, God's anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. That's verse 12. That's verse 17. That's verse 21, the last verse of our text. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Amazing. And beloved, I'm thinking of that light in the center of the, the message here. For unto us there's this son given, there's this wonderful child born, this son is given, and that's Jesus. And yet, it says here that for all of this even, the birth of this son, the sign of God's favor, there is nevertheless still sin in Israel and God's anger, even though there's this light of the gospel there. What is going on here? I want to explore this. Let's consider a wonderful 
Light of Emmanuel here, a theme of light. Want to consider the gross darkness. Want to consider the great light of the sun. That's our text, verses 6 and 7, to be sure, in the whole of the Bible. And then we want to consider great grace and leave us in ourselves with things to ponder here and things to do. Great darkness, so much so that there was gloom, the gloom, uh, there was distress, and said to be the people walking in darkness in verse 2 of Isaiah 9, and that there is this shadow of darkness called the shadow of death upon the land, even Emmanuel's land. Death in Emmanuel's land. Amazing. Death and judgment. Now, beloved, we know that this is the terrible plight of this whole world. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, there was this wonderful light in paradise, the light of the fellowship of God, but now darkness When you rebel against God, there's this judgment of God. It's called darkness and death and doom. Amazing. Darkness is the darkness of ignorance. People, sinners, have fallen into darkness and they don't know the light of God. They don't know God anymore. Now, to be sure, everyone knows God. And for this he or she or they and societies are responsible. Don't think that for a minute people just don't know God absolutely. God has written in people's hearts in this thing called the conscience, the knowledge of him who is to be worshipped and who is to be uh, uh, listened to. But what we're talking about here is this darkness of ignorance of the true God and of the gospel and of this intelligence that's eternal life. This is lacking in this world. And so the light of nature, as we say, it is only the light of the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1. God is angry with this fallen world, ignorant, willfully ignorant, pushing back at any vestige of truth. They'll see in the snow nothing of the cleansing that is in Jesus. They'll behold in the the events of society nothing of the sovereign God who's ruling over societies. No. They will know nothing of the one upon whom the government is is upon his shoulders. They they know nothing of that. They just think it's it's all going according to some natural explanation of things and laws winding down or even winding up now because there's this problem called global warming, so it's said. And so you have this lack of intelligence, and I mean in the spiritual sense of the word, and what happens is people fall. They, They trip because they don't know the light to walk by. They don't know that. They don't want to know that. They, they trip over themselves, over one another, and, and they fall into immorality. 
Their lack of light is their idolatry. They don't want God, the God of life, even though they know that he is God and he is to be obeyed. But from that idolatry saying, no, I don't want this God, they, they have other gods and, and then they, they go into immorality, that variance from the truth. They deviate from the mark that they're called to hit, which is the bullseye of the law of God. And they say, no, we have another target. We're aiming high on this, and we're doing this and that, and this is the agenda we want to have, and this is the thing we want to to live for. And the devil and God himself take the highway. It's called my way. Then people doing it their way and singing, I did it my way. And glorying in doing things my way. That's the darkness. What is to be known by us and what people ought to know but they don't, is that this darkness is of the devil. The devil is called the prince of darkness. Do you know that? He's the prince of this world, the prince of darkness. Grim. That's why this world is so grim and gloomy, despondent. It's amazing. I'm amazed that even the Christmas spirit can't, uh, can sometimes dispel the gloom for a moment or for a season at Macy's and Christmas trees and all of that. Still working, the spirit of the world, to to raise people's spirits. I believe increasingly, though, it's going to be impossible even to raise the human spirit to human kindness and to human joys because it's so gloomy because of the devil. And the devil's more powerful than human beings. Oh, maybe, maybe he will give a kind of joy to people. But so long as it substitutes for joy in the Lord, and so long as gloominess takes a moral spin to it, we're gloomy about all of the crime and the injustice and the inequality, also of outcome. And they think that their cause then, their sadness over these oppressions and perceived aggressions, micro and macro, are the problems. The devil laughs all the way to the bank and all the way to hell as people substitute for truth their own version of truth and for gloom, despondency over all of these worldly evils. That's what they're substituting for repentance and sin against God. And joys... Those are in man's humanity to man that somehow makes the YouTube and note this act of kindness today. Doesn't it warm your heart? Doesn't Hollywood lead the way in warming hearts and having Christmas stories and of reunions and forgiveness? And Scrooge turned to a generous man in the end. It's darkness. It's all darkness. And the worst thing is it's in the church. 
This is the setting here. There's gloom. The leaders who say to the people, here's the answer to the chastisements of God and the judgments of God. You seek for wisdom and in mediums and wizards and, and you try to roll up your theological sleeves and change your theological sleeves to something that's going to be more useful. Something that's going to get the gloom out of the church and the stagnancy out of the church. We're just going to hype things up. Be glad, beloved, you don't have a consistory of wizards. And that you don't allow here a wizard on the pulpit. Gee whiz, bang, we're going to do it up. We're just going to be, in the name of being all things to all men, just about nothing to all men, so that we can, by the lowest common denominator of truth maybe, Get the people in. Here it is. When Jesus came to this earth, he fulfilled this prophecy. Do you know that? In Matthew 4, you read of this in, I think, verse 13 and following. He came and he was walking in Galilee. And there are ways that this is... uh, Described here in our text, the gloom of Galilee, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, verse 1, and it's by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of Gentiles. Seems to be there that there's a listing of the various provinces of Galilee and tribes of Galilee that together was Israel, the northern kingdom. When Jesus came, he says, this is the Galilee of the Gentiles. The Gentiles had taken over. Oh, beloved, that's the fulfillment of what's going on here. And what's going on here is this Gentilification, if I can say that, of Israel, the northern kingdom. They had become like the Gentiles. They'd worshipped other gods. There wasn't one king among them that was good. And then they had confederated with Syria to go against Judah. Judah herself wasn't much better. And so she herself is being chastised here. We saw that in chapter 8. But here the focus is on the light that comes to the Gentiles, who in the meantime are in the dark. And beloved, I say here's a prophecy and fulfillment of prophecy when Jesus comes to the church. Of the church. There's darkness in all of this world. But there's gross darkness. Great darkness. Among the people of God. There's something that's not usually preached on in Christmas time. What joy and light and and, and lightness and so on. But. You have to deal with the people that go by the name of God's people who walk in darkness. Walk in darkness. And they become this Galilee of the Gentiles who used to be Emmanuel's land. And here you see, beloved, something that's true biblically long from cover to cover, but then history long, that the greatest darkness is always found among the people of God. That's why judgment begins at the house of God. 
Judgment begins there at the house of God. Jesus comes to the house of God, the people to whom the law, the covenant, and the promises were given. They, the ones who rejected him, they were alarmed at the announcement of the wise men from the east, not from Judah, but from the east, that there was this king born of the Jews. They were alarmed. And they would crucify him. And this is, again, I say, the nature of the the beast, which is the sinful church. That outward core of Israel, you call it, the liberals, not only the northern kingdom, the ones who apostatize first, they say, we don't want to have anything to do with the house of David, but also the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, Grand Rapids, and all of the Orthodox, Reformed, and Presbyterian who think they have the truth, but they just have their hands holding the truth, maybe, but not really, and the truth is not holding them. You see the difference. What I'm describing here is apostasy, something that is increasingly what's clear from the Bible and from looking around in light of the Bible of the church of Jesus Christ that goes by the name of Jesus Christ and church of Jesus Christ. It's called the falling away, 2 Thessalonians 2. Before the Antichrist, at the end of time, there will be a great falling away and the apostle warns the Thessalonians about this. The day of Antichrist will not come. The one who's opposed to God and yet who sets himself up in the place of God and and of Jesus the Savior. Before this comes, there has to be a falling away in the church because that's where people fall away. The world, you see, has already fallen. It's dead in sins. But what happens is there's a church and there's life in the church and there's some truth and so they, they have been drawn nigh to God, but they fall away from it. There's a fallout and a fall down. This is called apostasy, apostasia, a falling away by those who once had the truth and now they don't want it anymore. And it comes little thing by little thing, heresy by heresy, office bearer by office bearer who shouldn't be there, Sermon by sermon, and the people wanting it so. When Jesus comes, he says, shall the Son of Man find faith in the earth? Shall he find a people of God anymore? How can that be? They're rejecting me. They're rejecting the hard things of me. The fact that I'm a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense as well as a sanctuary for sinners. The fact that I am this Savior who's also the judge. People don't hear that, don't want to hear that. There's a falling away. They leave the tents of David. They leave the true king of the universe. They want to be ruled according to philosophies and counselors and economic people who have their way in the church to sell the the gospel. 
instead of the truth as it is in Jesus in the Bible. Now it's darkness. What's amazing is that in the midst of it, and in the midst of this prophecy, where three times it says God's still angry with that people, unto us a child is born. And there's this amazing juxtaposition, this putting of one thing against another or even on top of it, of light on top of and next to the darkness, right in this chapter. goes back and forth and back and forth from darkness to light and, and then darkness again. But here you have it here. You have to understand this, this prophecy, this wonderful prophecy that's sung in Messiah and some of you love to sing, and I love to sing. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's exhilarating language. It's a song of every child of God, of another child. And children, this is why you don't have to fear monsters in the dark or under the bed, or in the closet, and why we don't have to fear that monster called sin and the devil. Because this child is Jesus, has to be. This one who is born, prophesied to be born 700 years before he actually is, and yet it's seen here as a reality, it's the nature of promises. They forecast a future reality, but they themselves are real. This is reality here. Among the people of God in the darkness, there's this light. The word is attaching itself to them, and they have their faith work to join themselves to this hope, this light, and to live by it. It has to be Jesus, of course. Governments upon his shoulder, that is, he's the king. Not Midian, not Assyria, not Syria, no kings in Israel, but he's the king. That's the idea of the government being upon his shoulder, the honor, the burden, the work. Notice his name, though, and I go through this briefly, and then we'll lead you to some applicatory points. His name is wonderful, and I, I believe this is the, the way we ought to look at this whole list of, of eight or so things that's said about Jesus. His name is wonderful, and some say wonderful counselor, mighty God. It's all kind of different names or two here, two there. But I think the lead name is at the lead of the list, wonderful. That's the idea. The son who is born and given is wonderful, which means set apart. It's the Hebrew word for set apart. It refers to miracles and marvelous works of God. And surely Jesus is the marvel of God. He does marvelous things. He is the wonder worker, and we see this in the New Testament, how he worked these wonderful miracles. His name is wonderful. And his name is wonderful in the ways that are described in the text. He's the counselor of God. There is no other counselor of God. He's the one who with the Father was counseling all things, and by Jesus and for him would the worlds be made and there'd be this plan that was executed. So it would not stop at the garden. 
It would continue when Jesus would come and redeem his own. Everything working according to plan. Not according to your plan or my plan or some evangelist plan to save 500,000 by 2025 or something like that. He's wonderful. And his plan is perfect. And he knows the end from the beginning. He knows, does that architect, that wonderful building that's going to be built out of that. And he has heaven in mind and hell as well. And he has the glory of God. That's why he's called the wonderful counselor. He has this child, the glory of the Father in mind and in view. He comes to do the will of this God. After all, he's born. He is the mighty God is born. He's the mighty God. Proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ, but he's born. Proof of the humanity of Jesus Christ. You deny either one or both or maybe mix them together and you say he's just a God man or he's a man God and you have a problem because he's really man and not a mixture of man and God and he's really God and not someone who's only half God with human characteristics. He is in the person of his divine being, so the fathers, and so we are led by the scriptures, very God, who takes on the human nature in Bethlehem. Before that, when he's conceived. So he's very man, he's born. And he's the everlasting father. This is where people can get confused, and maybe rightly so, because they know the creed. The creed is, the Father is not the Son. The eternal God, the Father, in the person of the Trinity, the first person of the Trinity, is not the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And so, the Father didn't die on the cross, only the Son did. And the Son is only begotten. Well, beloved, how can Jesus, who's born, be the everlasting Father then? Well, I'm glad you have those those problems in your mind. Hopefully, I'm leading you to those problems so that we can know the solutions. Because, of course, Jesus the Son is not the Father as he is the Son. It could simply refer, everlasting Father, to the fact that there's this triune God because the Father is often called the triune God. And so Jesus, as the member of the Trinity who is the triune God is called here what he rightly is called the everlasting Father and the Creator and so on. Could also be, according to the Hebraism, is that he's the Father of everlastingness or eternity. So he is the originator of eternal life, we might say. He's the Father of everlastingness. That would be a way, a proper translation of that as well. But we move on. He's the Prince of Peace. He, of course, is the leader in the way of reconciliation to God, and this is why there's light in the midst of the darkness. God's anger will be turned away. We hope in him. He's the prince of peace. There's a prince of the world and of chaos, the devil. But there's a prince of peace. That's Jesus, who is our peace. And then, of course, you have the, the great wonder of the fact that he has a government, and his government is a rule. That's the idea. But of his government and peace, there is mention here, meaning that his rule is not just the rule of the White House, but it's the rule of God's house, so that 
this ruler, this son, who's the mighty God, the everlasting father, wonderful counselor, and prince of peace, is a covenant ruler. This is the idea of the rule in the kingdom of heaven. He's in sovereignty and he's in fellowship with his people. That's covenant. I am the God of Abraham and his children. I am God with us. This is what Emmanuel's all about. Emmanuel's land is all about. Emmanuel's people is all about. They're ruled, but they're fellowshiped with. They're loved. They're taken into the bosom of the king. This is remarkable. Because way back in chapter 6, there was this king on the throne high and lifted up, and there were seraphs and seraphim all around, and Isaiah said, I'm, I'm a dead man now. I've seen this holy one. I'm falling apart. I'm under his wrath. He's so high. How could he come to be my God? I'm such a sinner. Well, here, Emmanuel's land has a child who's born as the everlasting God, the the wonderful father who's the prince of peace and whose government is with peace. And sinners are reconciled. Glory to God in the highest. Much more could be said about that, except I want you to know this is revealed here. This truth in the darkness. Because people... They call his name what his name is. They call him who he is. That's the idea of revelation there. His name shall be called by whom? By God, by the angel Gabriel, who didn't say it in so many words. By the way, this is never said of Jesus himself, but it has to be of Jesus because he's the only one who fits the description here. But the idea is that we call him these things. We say of this one, the government is upon his shoulders and and there's this sovereignty about his reign so that there's no end to it. And he's the one who fulfills the promise to David upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Here's the one who comes. Here's the one. And it's not Hezekiah. It's not Josiah. It's not any other good king, David or Solomon. It's Jesus. And We get to know him that way. In the middle of the darkness. You know that? Beloved, now leading into my final point here. You know, I tried to say I'm going to bring this whole chapter in. The backdrop of the darkness and darkness in Israel, you need to know something. You're a part of the problem. You're a part of the problem, and I'm a part of the problem. We're a part of the dark as we are born in Adam. And as we are born, even in Emmanuel's land, except we be born again in Emmanuel's land, except we believe on the Lord and are saved by the Lord, But then we know that he's every bit of the solution. And this is all about grace here. It's not that we first trusted in him, but he came for us, and he's 
born and unto us the Son is given. See those words? Those are grace words. Unto us, to us who are in the darkness, the child is born. And unto us the Son is given. Not even that we take him, but he's given to us. Not that we reach out and grab the lifeline. No, we're dead. We're at the bottom of the sea. Doesn't matter if the sea's in Emmanuel's land. We're at the bottom, and we don't reach for anything. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God gives the Son to us. And then he gives faith so that we receive the Son, and that's the prison. Uh, excuse me, that's the present of God at Christmas time. Under the tree? No. In our hearts? But now, why is it, beloved, that his anger is not turned away here? Three times. This is what I wrestled with in reading this chapter over and over again. There's this prophecy of the Son, and then it goes back to judgment. There's this undeniable victory of the Son, the increase of his government. There shall be no end. God's people will be gathered. The kingdom will come. The enemies will be destroyed. Assyrians, Syrians, Democrats, Republicans, devils, all destroyed in any one part of the Babel. Blah, 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 blah. All destroyed. Why is there still anger here? Why? Three times. All, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still upon Emmanuel's land. And it seems upon us. You know why, beloved? I'll leave you with this. That one who's wonderful, that one who is the child born, the son given, must needs be born, but he has to die too. You see, here's a prophecy of his birth. Something else has to happen. Something that's missed, the little babe under the Christmas tree and the crutch and so on. It's the babe of the cross. It's the babe who grows and learns obedience by the things that he suffers and steals his face and his will to go to the darkness, the cross. And you have the darkness. You know what the gospel is? The God whose light comes into our darkness and takes it upon himself, our sin upon himself, the wrath of God upon himself. That's... That's my God, and that's grace. And that's the only way that the anger's turned away, as we'll hear tonight. And it is no more. When God, as it were, turns his own face from his son, and he falls into the darkness of the abyss of hell for us. That's, beloved, grace. The grace of the child born, Christ, also then crucified. He's born to die. 
risen again, coming again. This is the beginning of the gospel of God and the beginning of the kingdom, world without end. And now, beloved, we can face all the darkness that remains, don't we? We can. Monsters under the bed, problems in life, difficulties we have in our families, in our marriages, and so on, and things needing reconciliation. Yes, we can face that, and we deal with that because of this wonderful light. The Gentiles have seen a great light. The Jews have seen a great light. Sinners have seen a great light in the darkness of this world. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. That's the light of the gospel. Angels herald it. So may we. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless now as we hear the gospel of that wonderful champion, the light of the world, even Jesus, the wonderful Savior, Son in Emmanuel's land. Lord, we pray that you would bless us now. We hear the truth. May we live by it. May we understand that all the monsters of sin have been taken care of. Jesus Christ is our advocate now for any monsters and devils and sins that remains. We have an advocate with him who's died for our sins and is coming again to, to glorify us and to give us eternity of sinless joy with you. Bless this congregation, those who may be visiting. We pray, give us to to have a great day of rest and then to return to your house again and and to rejoice in the wonderful gospel. For Jesus' sake, amen.